to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Welcome, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City of the Hill. I did not introduce myself at the beginning of the service. I apologize for that. I uh, just want to welcome you and uh, thank you for being here today. If you are a guest with us, we're really glad that you're here, especially. And if you're a first-time guest, we'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, you'll find a blue connection card in your seat. And uh, be sure to take that connection card to the back table and somebody will be back, be back there to meet you and hand you a uh, gift card to Thurcliffe Bakery. It's our thank you for you being here this morning. So just exchange your card for that card. Um, the card, the blue card has no money on it. That one does. So uh, be sure to do that. Um, we'll also send you an email this week, uh, which uh, will have a list of charities that you can choose from. And we'll make a donation in your name as a thank you for you being here today. So just take that back to the back table after the service. Our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel means good news. Uh, We were once separated from God because of our sinful choices, because of our sinful actions. And uh, God gave his own son for us to die in our place so that anyone who trusts in what Jesus has done, they will be saved. And so if you've not entered into that this morning, I would love to talk with you about how to do so today. Uh, Secondly is community. God created us for relationships. So the way that relationships work best is when they're centered around Jesus. And so we do this through community groups, groups of six to 12 people who get together during the week to talk about the Bible, uh, to encourage each other, and also to love and serve our neighbors. If you're not connected to a community group, be sure to fill out that yellow card, mark that, and we'll get you connected to one. And then lastly, mission. God's good news should be told. So we tell others what Christ has done for us, but we also demonstrate it by living out our faith, by serving others as Jesus has served us. And as we kind of get into our announcements, uh, one particular way that we can do that this week is to be a blessing to our community. One of our strategies as a church is to partner with uh, entities and organizations that are already doing good things in the community and coming alongside them. So one way we do that is through English high school. So let me ask you a question. Who likes tacos? Y'all like tacos? We've got a problem. Uh, Everybody loves tacos. And so uh, we are doing a walking taco night uh, with our partners over at English High School to be a blessing to their ESL program. And uh, we need volunteers. And so uh, our own Mark Lee, who often uh, uh, plays the cajon for us, is also a chef. And so he is going to be leading out on that. Uh, And so we need volunteers. We need uh, two groups of volunteers. Thank you, Matt. Uh, We need a group from uh, about four to six to help with prep. And then we need a group of volunteers from six to eight to help with serving. So a total of about eight volunteers. We have a few already. If you are interested in this, let me know, let Mark know, and we will line all the, let, let you do this. So you can do one section, you can do both sections, you can do both depending on how, how, uh, how ready you are to serve. So we'd love for, to get you guys connected to that this week. A couple of other things coming up. Um, Coming up at the end of the month, uh, on Friday the 28th, we're having our next Newcomers Dinner. So if you're new to City on a Hill and you want to get to know a few people and figure out what's maybe some next steps for you, uh, we'd love to feed you dinner. It's going to be at my house. Just sign up through our uh, event page, coahforesthills.org slash events. And uh, we would just, again, love to to have you there. So this is a great way to get to know people. Uh, Coming up on the 30th and and two Sundays, we're having our next baptism class. So if you uh, are interested in following Jesus or maybe made that profession of faith but haven't yet been baptized, uh, we'd love to walk with you through how to do so. So be sure to 
Join us in that class right after the service on the 30th. And then lastly, next weekend is our church retreat. We will, some of us will be out of town, but a number are not signed up for the treat, so we, retreat. So we will be having a service here next Sunday. Uh, so we have more of a stripped back service, a little more acoustic. Uh, we're gonna have a really good time with that. So be sure to join us if you are going to be in town next Sunday. Now, this morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis. We've been in the book of Genesis since September, and we plan to be in Genesis for a while. Uh, We're going to be in it through uh, the end of November, and then we'll take a break for Advent, and then we'll jump back in in the beginning of the new year. But to give you a recap of where we've been and where we're going, uh, Genesis chapter 1, we looked at creation. We looked at how God created all things, and really the message of Genesis 1 and the message of the entire Bible is God, God revealing himself to us, showing us what he's like. um, showing us his power and his purpose and his beauty, and that God created us in his image to reflect that to the world. So we are to demonstrate how powerful and good and beautiful God is. He created us in in Genesis 2 uh, to cultivate the the earth, to work, and to live out life-giving relationships with each other. Now, last week, we looked at Genesis 3, how it all began to unravel and all began to fall apart, and we looked at the fall, how sin wrecked the world and wrecked our lives, and how Adam and Eve forfeited life with God for a false kingship. They didn't want to live under the kingship of, of God, and under the kingship of, uh, of, of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but really kind of wanted to be the president of their own little make-believe country. Um, that's what it is like to live in sin, is to want to be in control of something that really doesn't exist. So they're cast out of the garden, and at the end of chapter 3, we see that they are sent east of Eden. If you ever read the book, East of Eden, it describes the fallenness and the brokenness of the world, and that is the world that you and I live in. We live in a world that is falling apart. We live in a world where we don't experience the natural, daily, momentary communion with God that we were designed to live with because we live in this world broken by sin. And all that you and I do is we just rehash and reframe the Genesis 3 story over and over and over again because we just continue to rebel against God. Uh, I don't know about you, but it seems like every movie that comes out in the last decade has been a remake of another movie. We remake bad movies. Uh, we, we, we remake movies that should never be remade. And we do the same thing in our lives where we continue to grasp the power. We continue to try to be in control. We try to remake that movie that's always looking out for ourselves. And all we're doing is just playing out the same old story and the same old narrative that we believe we could know better than God. And this fallout of the fall begins in Genesis chapter 4. Now, a few notes about where we're going in Genesis. Uh, The pace is about to speed up. We we took about a month and a half to look at the first three chapters. We're going to cover the next seven in about a month and a half. So the pace is going to speed up a little bit. And part of that is that it's more narrative. There's a little more, uh, some, of the, some of the stories take multiple chapters. So we're going to try to uh, kind of go with the flow of the text. And the other thing is that not everything we're going to be reading over the next several months is prescriptive, meaning that not, you're not supposed to do everything you see here. Um, you shouldn't, you know, definitely shouldn't murder your brother. Um, you shouldn't take two wives. Should, there's multiple things, and we'll explain why. Uh, that's not prescriptive. That's descriptive. And we actually begin to see the brokenness of things that happen when we do things outside of God's design. And there are clearly going to be parts where God gives us a rule or gives us a law or gives us a command, and we'll unpack that. But we'll also have to look a little deeper in the story to kind of dig out what God has for us. So today, we're going to be looking at what life is like east of Eden. What is life like in a world that's wrecked by sin? 
Starting in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we see that life goes on, but that sin lurks behind every corner. Sin is behind every corner. In verse 1, we see, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. And so life seemingly goes on. It's fascinating that you shall surely die from chapters 2 and chapters 3 didn't lead to immediate physical death. It led to immediate spiritual death and, and separation from God. But what's happening is that they are slowly decaying. They don't just die outright. God doesn't just like throw a lightning bolt through their chest as soon as they left the garden. They just kind of begin to slowly decay and die, but life seemingly goes on. Verse 1, we see that he knew his wife Eve. That's physical intimacy. They, They have a child through this, and she conceives and bears a son. God is still blessing them even though they were no longer in the garden. God is still pursuing them and showing them his grace and, and allowing them to live out the way that he created them to be, to, be, to flourish and, and to multiply and fill the earth. And so we see this, that God is showing them common grace. And so Eve, seemingly kind of recovering some of her faith, sees this as a blessing from God. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She has conceived and born a son. And then verse two, she says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. And so in Adam and Eve's mind, they're seeing the world that they're living in. They're seeing that God is still blessing them in some ways. And they have to have in their mind the promise we saw last week. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God said that the seed of Eve, the child of Eve would one day crush the serpent, crush Satan's sin and death. And like a lot of parents, they have really high hopes for their kids. They have really high expectations. Anybody grow up in a household where you were never allowed to make a, a, a B? You were never, if you acted out, you were going to like get smacked or like thrown from a moving vehicle. Like, like you, you were never allowed to be a bad kid. They probably have some pretty high expectations for, for, for their kids, for Cain and for Abel. And they grow up to be pretty successful. It says in verse 2, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He took on dad's family business. And Cain, a worker of the ground. Or sorry, Cain was the worker of the ground. He took on the family business. Abel kind of stepped out on his own. They're, they're pretty successful. And just like Adam and Eve, they were created to worship God. They were created to, to glorify him. And they, pro- they had such high hopes for their kids. They're probably looking at them and wondering, man, is Cain the one who's going to do what God promised? Is Cain going to be the one who crushes the serpent's head? And it all begins with worshiping God rightly, and and that doesn't change after the fall. God is still inviting them to worship, to give of themselves, even in a fallen and broken world. Because God is, is holy. We saw this last week. That's the entire point of the garden scene, is that God is holy, and that sin is an offense against a holy God. He deserves to be told how great he is. He deserves to be told how good he is, how wonderful he is. I love going to concerts. I got to see one of my favorite bands, King's Kaleidoscope, up in Cambridge a few months ago. And what do you do when you enjoy someone's music? You clap, you cheer, you get excited. Maybe even go up to the artist after the show and tell them how much their music means to you. You try not to like, you know, fan out too much. Like you, you, you go and describe how wonderful what they did is. When we come to God, we come to him and describe how wonderful he is. We, we tell him how good he is. We tell him how, how beautiful he is, what, what he's done for us, how he's changed us. And we see the nature of worship that is meant to set something aside, set our lives aside to please God. And we see this in verse 3 where it says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit 
of the ground. So Cain comes and brings some of his crops and brings it before the Lord. And then in verse 4, it says, And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So they both bring an offering to the Lord. But notice God's response to their offerings. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why, Why does God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's offering? Now, it's not because God prefers steak over kale. I'm sure it was, probably wasn't kale. It was more like grain. And it's not that he just, he's a meat eater. It's, that's not what it is. Both of those actual offerings later, if you look in, in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, actually would be acceptable offerings. It's the manner in which they brought the offering. If you notice it in, in Cain's offering, it says that Cain brought an offering, but Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. The fat portion is the good part. You ever eat a steak? The fat is the good part. You people who cut off the fat, I don't know what's wrong with you. That's the good part. He's giving the very best to God. He's giving everything that he has to God. He's not holding anything back for himself, but what Cain does, and Cain gives a sacrifice. Cain gives something. It was, he gives something that cost him something, but it wasn't something that cost him his best. He holds it back for himself. This isn't the best example, but I think about food, so it's a great example for me. It's like when there's two pieces of pizza left, and one of those pieces is like the big pizza. The guy was just going to town with the pizza cutter, and it's all, it's like this big, and the other slice is like this big. And the slice over here has like 63 pieces of pepperoni, and this one has like, like pepperoni was suggested to it. Like there's not even a piece of pepperoni on it. And your friend asks for a piece of pizza, and you're still hungry. Which piece of pizza are you going to give your friend? Cain gives the tiniest little slice of pizza. He has the tiniest little piece of offering because true worship requires sacrifice. It requires us giving ourselves to God. And when we worship God and we sacrifice and we give of ourselves, it was supposed to resemble them setting themselves aside. It was a recognition that God was so worthy and so worth it that the dearest thing to them was worth giving to them as their best. When you give an expensive gift to a friend, something that costs you a lot of money, a lot of time, what you're saying is you're worth me making the sacrifice. And God honors this because it takes humility. Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. God honors those who trust him, believing that what he gives is better than anything that we could hold back for ourselves. And this is an issue of the heart. And we see this is an issue of the heart because of Cain's reaction. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. He doesn't show any contrition. He doesn't show that he's sorry in any He doesn't show any shame. His concern is not, man, I messed up and I didn't bring God my best. He's just mad. He's just angry. He can't even be happy for Abel. He he can't even look at Abel and say, man, I'm I'm so glad that you got this right, even though I messed it up. And the reason is, is, I mean, if you have a sibling, you understand. You're constantly in conflict and competition with your siblings. You want to, my brother and I would see who could eat the fastest. Like anything became a competition. He wanted to do better than his own brother. His heart was in the wrong place. And it's almost as if he's looking at God and saying, how dare you not accept me? 
How, how dare you not? I mean, I go to worship every week. I read my Bible. I give money. I care about people. How dare you not accept that? This is probably the first time in a long time that Cain had not been accepted by someone. In fact, his name means prosper. Cain is, is looking at this and saying, I, I, everything I do, everything I touch, I'm successful at He's the older brother, and if you understand anything about Hebrew culture, the blessing would end up going through the oldest brother, the oldest son, and he was supposed to be a blessing to everyone else. His younger brother, Abel, his name meant vapor or breath. It also had the idea of being worthless. He's an afterthought. He's like, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm always doing better than my brother. And you see this in, in, in verses 1 and 2. Even the way that Eve describes Cain versus Abel, she describes Cain as a godsend. I got a man with the help of the Lord. And oh yeah, his brother Abel. Abel was probably more, or sorry, Cain was probably more successful, stronger. He's probably mom and dad's favorite. And yet here he fails. And notice how God graciously goes after him. He, he presses in with Abel or with Cain. And he says in verse 6, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? God is a really good counselor. That's why they call him the wonderful counselor. And he asks really good questions. You have a good, if you go to counseling, a good counselor knows how to draw out your heart. And in the same way, God is trying to draw out Cain's heart and help him see, maybe with a different perspective, that maybe you have this whole thing out of whack. Worship isn't about you and your performance and how good you look. It's about me and, and humbling yourself before me. And, and he's trying to help him see this. And he gives him some hope in verse, at the end of verse uh, uh, 6 and 7. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He wants him to succeed. He wants him to thrive. He wants him to worship well. He's saying, you can come back from this. This isn't, this isn't your entire story. You'll be accepted. Shouldn't that be your greatest desire to be accepted and loved by the God who knows you and created you? But he wants him to know how serious sin is. He says at the end of verse 7, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. To do well here is to humble himself and give God his best. And we see that sin is crouching in the human heart. It's lurking. It's waiting to pounce. And it portrays sin here not just as a bad choice that you make, but it portrays it as a power. It portrays it as something that's looking to take shape, an evil that's looking to take shape. I don't know if you, if you like Harry Potter, if you like the books or the movies. At the beginning of the story, we see Voldemort is kind of a spirit or a force, and he's looking to take shape in someone. And Professor Quirrell, in the first book or the first movie, is this really bumbling, insecure person everybody was overlooking. He became very bitter, and he became a really good host for the personification of evil. In the same way, what evil is looking to do in us is it's looking for those places of bitterness, it's looking for those places of hatred, it's looking for those places of anger and unresolved feelings that are looking to rebel against God. And these are things that will consume us because they're really, really inviting. They're really appealing. If you've ever looked at like, vampire myths, uh, if you look at the old myths and stories about vampires, they had to be invited into your home. They were very polite at the door. 
They, 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 were, they were very charming at the door, but they wouldn't come in until they were invited. In the same way, sin is crouching and waiting to be invited into our homes, very appealing into our hearts. But they'll destroy us and consume us if we let them in. Sin is not something out there. It's lurking at the door of our heart and it's waiting for any vulnerability, any ounce of pride. And God says that you must rule over it. Meaning that every time we are faced with the choice to sin, we're given the same opportunity that Adam and Eve were to turn from our pride and humbly turn toward the Lord. Well, we know the story and Cain does not do that. Verse 8 Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He calls his brother out to the field, likely with the intention to murder his brother. And what we know about sin is that this didn't just happen. It's not just that you know, Cain all of a sudden was having a wonderful day and then just randomly kills his brother. Cain was nursing that anger. He was nursing that bitterness. He was nursing that envy. He ignored the crouching sin in his heart. And it's easy for us to see the big sins. It's easy for us to look at murder and think, man, like, that's bad. It's easy for us to see robbery or adultery or all these other things and say, man, those are the big, bad sins. But can you see the crouching sin in your heart? The stuff that's just lingering and waiting for an opportunity to flare up. Maybe it's your overwork and your worry. Maybe it's that bitterness that's just stirring and stewing. Maybe it's stinginess and this unwillingness to be generous. Maybe it's just that low-grade anger that you always call frustration. Anybody, anybody ever feel that? That is that low, you're just all the time, you're kind of on edge. Maybe it's just this pride that's just simmering in your heart. And we see God continue to pursue Cain. Verse 9, then the Lord said, to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Do you see the symmetry to chapter three where God said the very same thing to Adam and Eve, where are you? And unlike Adam and Eve who began to make excuses, Cain doesn't even try to make an excuse. He's like, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to know where he's at? Don't you have GPS on his phone? Like, I, I don't know where he's at. I'm like, well, t- tell me where he's at. You should know. And the Lord presses in and the Lord curses him. He says in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother, his blood cry, is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground. So Adam and Eve, they, they were not directly cursed. Their, their labors were cursed. But here it says that the blood stands guilty against you and God curses the ground completely. So Adam's work became harder. Cain's work became impossible. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its fruit. You shall be a a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain's response to this is just mind-blowing. He's not even sorry. He he doesn't say, man, what have I done? I cannot believe that I murdered my brother. I can't believe I let my anger, my bitterness, and my envy get to this place. He says in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Not what have I done, but God, you're not fair. God, you're too harsh. He says, I'm going to be vulnerable, verse 14. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, which he's driven him from the ground, and from your face, which he has not said, by the way, I shall be hidden. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. 
He's more concerned with the consequences than the offense. It's like when you hit your sibling as a kid and they start to cry, and you're like, no, 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 stop, 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 calm down, quit crying. You're not concerned about the fact that you just punched them in the face. You're concerned about the fact they're going to tell mom and dad. That's the same thing. He's concerned with the consequences, but God continues to show him grace, even in the, in the fact that he is not even a little bit sorry. He says in verse 15, God says, not so. This is incredible patience. Cain shows no remorse, but what is God doing? He says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. He protects him. What is God doing? He's delaying judgment. He's delaying ultimate judgment against Cain. Why? Because Romans 2 says that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. That God holding back his judgment from us when we sin is his kindness and giving us the opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus. And, and if you've not trusted in Jesus to take away your sin, every moment you live is God's patience towards you. And to not receive that forgiveness and repent is prideful and dangerous because Cain still won't repent. Cain still won't let it go. Verse 16, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He still won't turn back to God. Adam and Eve are driven away from the garden, but they can still interact with God in some form or fashion. And Cain chooses to take God's kindness for granted to reject his kindness. See, refusing to repent is to refuse the kindness and the love of God. But coming to God requires that we lay down our pride and we humble ourselves. So you ever thought about the fact that like, we often think about the fairness of God and we think about, you know, why does, you know, why does you know, good things, bad things happen to good people and why do people go to hell? We often don't think about the other side of that. Why does God show any patience towards us? If he created us and we were meant to, to glorify him, we were meant to love him and our sin is such a great offense against him, why does he show us any ounce of grace and patience? It's to draw us home, to call us to himself, to give us the opportunity to find forgiveness. So life goes on, but also we see that culture advances. Culture advances, but sin taints achievement. Cain went east, he settled in Nod, and he goes on to live actually a pretty prosperous life. We see that in verse 17, he already seems to be married, and he has a son named Enoch. So in verse 17, he knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. So she has this son, and we'll get into how all that works a little bit in, in November. We're going to have a big Q&A about all your questions about Genesis. So that may be wondering, where did she come from? We'll get to that in, in November. But there's something curious. He's supposed to be a wanderer and a fugitive, but he builds a city. And he names that city after his son, which is a lot of pressure, by the way. Um, you're probably going to be the one to inherit the city one day, and you better make good on that calling. And so he builds this city, and we see in the Bible that cities are sort of a double-edged sword. The Bible actually has a very positive view of the city. Um, I grew up in a place where the city was the big bad place where all the, all the stuff happened. But the Bible actually describes that it begins with a garden and ends with a city, a city where God is with us all the time. But before that enters into the world, cities are kind of a mixed bag. They're often a place of great achievement. 
They're a place that we're, we go to prove ourselves, but often it's a place where pr- people prove themselves apart from God. Cities become a testament to independence. They're saying, I did this. So cities are often a collection of fugitives and wanderers looking for purpose, trying to achieve and prove that they matter. They're places for the driven. They're places for the ambitious. Why are you in Boston? Many of you moved here for a particular job or a particular school, and you moved here in order to make it big, to achieve. It's a mixed blessing because things happen. We look at verses 18 through 20, we see Cain's family. It says, to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And we see that that probably not a lot changed. Probably not a lot of change in, in their family. But as we, as we look at the family, we see that, you know, if, if there was something different about them than Cain, they probably, probably would have mentioned that, which means that they were probably people who were, were pretty prideful. They're probably people who were, you know, pretty driven, pretty focused on their career, not on the Lord. And then we get to Lamech. And Lamech was exceptionally evil. And Lamech has three sons. We see in, in, uh, in verse, um, verse 20, we see that Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And so we see great advances come through Cain's family. Jabal, he was a nomadic farmer, and it obviously probably created some pretty incredible techniques around farming. Uh, I'm amazed at farmers. We actually lived on a farm when we lived in Arizona and had friends who were dairy farmers, and you can get water to the desert. I don't know how they do it, but it's pretty incredible, the techniques that we can have. We see that it comes from Cain's family. We see his brother Jubal, who was a, was a musician, who was an artist, and he played the lyre and the pipe, and, and we see these blessings that come through music. Uh, I love music, and I'm amazed at people who get and can explain music. I listened to Dave Matthews one time explain how he sees a guitar like most people see a percussion instrument, and he explained it, and I just, my mind was blown. That's a blessing. Tubal Cain was born to his other wife, uh, and, and he was a master of tools, um, uh, the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. In verse 22, the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama, and we, so we see this family of really successful people. Cain and his family were obviously incredibly gifted. This city is probably a blessing to all people around them. And so as humans, we can do amazing things. And even in our pride and our status seeking and our self-promotion, God uses all the little fractured desires that we have to bless the world. And even when a technological advance is done not to glorify God, but to make us look good, it can still make our lives easier. Even when there's medical advances that are not done to the glory of God, it still saves lives. Art, even done by someone who's not singing about Jesus, can still thrill our hearts. But all of this misses the mark, and it doesn't in a couple of ways. I think we would actually be further along culturally in every way if we worked for the glory of God. And that's actually a story we see throughout the book of Genesis, and you actually see it in the Tower of Babel, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. The Tower of Babel was not about saying that people coming together and working as a team is a bad thing across cultures. It's actually a story of oppression where people from different cultures were being held down. The story of the New Testament is actually that language and culture and ethnic diversity should multiply and grow throughout the world. It's a beautiful picture of the mosaic and tapestry that we have as people made in God's image. Amen? We see this, that should happen. It actually stifles that. If we were working to the glory of God, we would be more collaborative because we wouldn't care about getting credit. We would love our neighbor instead of 
take advantage of them because we want to see them flourish. But a culture that's only about us and not about the glory of God is also self-focused and then grown. It eventually eats itself because it's no longer about seeing people flourish, but it's about seeing how high we can build the tower. The third way we see life east of Eden begin to happen is that families prosper, but sin sows discord and suffering. Cain's family is this strange mix of success and sorrow. And like most families, they, they had heartache and they had happiness. If you came from a really hard family, it may have been awful, there are probably some happy memories you remember too. You remember that one Christmas, maybe that one birthday, that one positive interaction with a parent. If you grew up in a, in, a, in a wonderful home, I'm sure there are still things that hurt. We see the same thing in Cain's family, and we see this exceptional evil in Lamech, who in verse 19, this is one of those things that's prescriptive, or sorry, descriptive, not prescriptive, and Lamech took two wives. Now, one of the biggest kind of indictments people try to bring against the Bible is they say, well, you know, you look at the Old Testament, and man, the Bible talks all about polygamy. You see people marrying multiple wives, and you know, David had all these wives, and Solomon had like 700 and 1,000 concubines. The Bible is not saying that polygamy is okay. It's just describing the condition of the human heart that we want to use and abuse and want to be greedy. And there's this subtext that runs throughout the book of Genesis and actually runs throughout the entire Bible that polygamy and any other alteration on God's design for marriage always leads to pain and suffering. Every single time. And we, we, we're going to see this in multiple stories of Genesis with Abraham and with other people, how it always leads to pain. It always leads to pain. And sometimes it led to generations worth of pain. What we see in Lamech is we see an abusive and oppressive man who takes the, the picture of marriage at the end of Genesis 2 where someone's giving themselves wholly to someone and looks at people as someone to use. In fact, these are the first two women, Ada and Zillah, to be named outside of Eve. God wanted to honor these women who have been taken advantage of almost in a way to say, I see you. If you notice, in fact, if you look at Cain's line, who does it attribute each son to? It attributes them to their father. But in the case of Ada and Zillah, their children are attributed to their mother. It's a beautiful picture of God redeeming and restoring and honoring those who are often overlooked. We see Lamech's evil even in his song and his oppression, even in his song. He says in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of the Lamech, listen to what I say. Very, very strong and oppressive language. The worst of Genesis 3.16 where it said that the man would rule over her. And we see in this song, he actually begins to glory in his, his violence. He says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. In other words, the picture of a young man is probably a young teenage boy. And the word strike there is the idea of like just getting a black eye or, or a cut. He takes great pride in killing this young man and then presumes that God is going to take care of him. He says in verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. I can do whatever I want, and God will still protect me. And it may even be gloating or mocking, because whose protection was it actually for Cain? It, it wasn't Cain's protection, it was God's protection. He, he takes this for granted, and then we notice Cain's line just sort of stops. There's nothing else said about Cain or, or his family. 
I'm not sure what your family was like. Maybe your family was an absolute train wreck. Maybe, maybe your family was a total mess. Maybe it was full, your family history is full of abuse and addiction and neglect and poverty and hardship and loss. Maybe from the outside looking in, your family looked perfect, but your parents just never had enough time for you or you kind of felt like an afterthought. Family history is hard. And that's why so much counseling is dedicated to unpacking and unwinding winding that tied up ball of yarn called your family. Uh, several years ago, my wife and I got to go through a, uh, a, a counseling session or counseling method called Restore, and it actually looks at your family history. And uh, as we're going through it with some people from the Harbor Network, which we're a part of, Robert and Karen Chong, and, and part of their story is that they want you to look back at these different threads and things that you kind of just do without even knowing them. And I got to unpack this new part of my own story, and I realized that I tend to just feel like I got to bear everybody's burdens. I'm like, oh, you got a burden, just throw it on my shoulders. I'm just going to put, put it here. I'm going to do a little more. And so I saw this like with, with family members and friends, and, and I began to see that I didn't have to do that. Jesus does that. Jesus is the one who ultimately bears burdens. Because we have all this stuff that shapes us, all these stories. Sometimes it's things that a family member or a friend says to you. Sometimes it's something that's not even said to you, but it's just kind of was implicitly said. You can't do this, or you can't be this, or you are like this. You're always going to be like this. Your history defines you. And what we often see ourselves, and this is when we see the worst of us, is we see ourselves reacting in ways that we never wanted to be like, but we were shaped by. Sometimes we see things coming out of us that are good. And some of the things, we just feel like we're honestly just doomed to repeat. So when we look at the story here, where's the hope? The hope for us is that there's another family. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. All hope was gone, but now hope has been restored. The blessing, the promise is alive through Seth, even though it seemed to have died through Cain. And it says in verse 25 to Seth also, or 26, to Seth was also, uh, a son was born and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. They began to call upon him. Though, though Cain had failed, the promise of the one who deal with sin once and for all is still alive. And if you trace this line through the rest of the Bible, and we'll continue to trace this line through Genesis, eventually you land on a carpenter from Nazareth. You, you land on a Jewish carpenter named Jesus, who was the brother that Cain failed to be, who, like Abel, was unjustly killed. In this story, you and I are Cain. We're not Abel. We're not the innocent one. We're the ones that fail to bring our best to God. We're the ones that cover up our sin. We're the ones who are prideful and not humble. We're the ones who sin put Jesus upon the cross. And Jesus' blood cries out against us, not for vengeance, but for redemption. To, to pay for our sins and bring us back into right relationship with God. Jesus, unlike Lamech, loves his bride, the church, with faithful, singular love. And Jesus doesn't exact vengeance 77 times, but he tells us to forgive 70 times 7. He's the one who brings you into a new family with a good father. But for this to happen, it required that Jesus die, that he would die so that you and I could be forgiven, that he would be alone and abandoned so that you and I could be found. 
And here's what this means for us. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. There's no sinner too far gone to, to, to receive salvation. There's no sinner too, you know, who thinks they're good enough who doesn't need it. Secondly, no matter what you achieve or fail to achieve, you could never be more loved than a God who would give his son for you. Thirdly, no matter how lonely you might be, no matter how isolated you might be, no matter how bad your family life was, you have family because of Jesus. And this allows you to work through all your family issues and begin to extend forgiveness that you've received through Jesus. But to receive that, you have to stop running like Cain. You can't live however you want. You, you can't achieve your way to happiness, and you're never going to overwork and outwork your family history to have the best family possible to break that curse. You have to humble yourself and repent and to receive the life that God gives you that only comes through Jesus. Let's pray.